Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Vindicate me. That's, uh, this is the fifth Sunday of Lent, and those are the uh, uh, beginning words of our service. As we, we spoke in the intro, it, as today marks the beginning of what historically has been called the Passion Tide. It's uh, the last few weeks of the season of Lent as we approach closer and closer to Holy Week. And as we get closer to the cross, we, we take extra time to reflect on what that cross does. And that's why we began our service with the words from Psalm 43, Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people, for the deceitful and the unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them, lead, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of my God, to the God of my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. This Sunday is called Judica. It's Latin for vindicate or judge. And in that psalm, as we pray it, we are calling upon God to judge us. Well, how can we do such a thing? How can we call upon God to judge us? And how can we say that that judgment is what brings us joy so that we enter into praise of God, who we call our salvation? How can we invite divine scrutiny upon ourselves? It seems like a bit of a dangerous exercise, doesn't it? Judge me, O oh God. And maybe it's perhaps we don't want this, right? We, we don't want that much scrutiny in our lives. Maybe when we look at a distance, we examine our lives, we, we squint a little bit, we forget to put on our glasses or throw our contacts out. Maybe we can say our lives look good and praiseworthy. But under the microscope of divine scrutiny, to call upon God to look upon our lives and then make a defense for us, that seems a little bold. If they were really to zoom in on my life, I don't know if I'd want all of that out in the open, all the, the little bitter thoughts. The angry words mutter under our breath, the, the moments of laziness, the moments of sin. I really don't know what would be uncovered under the divine scrutiny of God. But it would be my preference if that dirty little laundry wasn't aired out. Yet God already knows. God already knows a bit, every bit of this stuff. He knows more of my sin than I do. And so when I ask God to vindicate me, how would I expect him to measure me and defend me against the ungodly? What could possibly make me so bold as to call upon the Holy One to declare me holy before the godless and the unrighteous? Well, it has everything to do with blood. Blood that has been spilled to ensure that God judges us to be righteous. There must be blood. That's what required 
That is what's required to purify sinners because blood is life. You think about your blood, without it, you die. Nothing in you exists apart from it, and that's what sin demands. It demands your life. It demands that blood is spilt, and that's what the penalty is. And that's the stark reality that Adam brought in to this human life of ours. It says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. Adam sinned, and Adam died. We sin, we will die. That's what sin demands. That's the price for it. This is the judgment that God declares. On that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so blood must be spilled. Hearts must give out. People die. Yet the will of God is not for sinners to remain under this judgment. The death that we must fear the most is not the death of our bodies, but it's that spiritual death that sin brings. Because sin puts us at enmity with God. It makes us his enemies, his adversaries. And it demands more than our bodies can bear. So that even as we die, we face something worse than death. We face the hell of eternal wrath with the Lord. And that's not good. It is eternal separation from God and his goodness, his kindness, his mercy. It's the willful, bound up and rebellious spirit that we possess according to our sinful nature. Godless life leads to godless death. As it says in 1 Thessalonians, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And so we think about sin. We think about life. We think about the cost of sin. And we think we must be vindicated. That's why we cry out, vindicate me, O God. But don't vindicate me by my own life, but by the life of another. Because as I said, we deserve nothing but destruction and death. The blood of someone who doesn't, doesn't deserve this. That's what must be shed in our place. And so for God to answer the prayer, vindicate me, O God, a righteous person must die. Because justice demands blood we need a substitute we need someone to undergo this death for us and that's what we see in our old testament lesson today we get a little shadow of that story abraham was commanded by god to sacrifice isaac and we must remember how important isaac is all salvation history was going to be bound up in Isaac. And so God made this big promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he'd have a son in his old age. That son would bring forth many descendants for Abraham so that they would become a great nation. And from that nation that came from Abraham, a blessing would come for all the world. The promised Savior would come from Abraham's son, Isaac. Now Abraham is terrified with a difficult choice. God demands that Isaac be sacrificed. His son, with whom all hope for the future is bound, God says now he has to die. What sense does that make? Why would God ask for such a thing? And so Abraham is faced with this grim prospect of taking his son up to the mountain to butcher him and to burn his body. And yet we see that as Abraham brings Isaac up to the mountain, 
He has a hope that extends beyond the ashes of that altar. First, we see that Abraham leaves his servants to go up and worship. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you again. What is Abraham's intention? That both he and his son will return. They'll come down from the mountain. Second, when Isaac questions his father, they, they've got the knife, they got the fire, they got the wood, they got everything for the sacrifice. And Isaac says, hey, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham answers faithfully. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so what can we conclude here? And even if Abraham were to sacrifice Isaac, he believes that God will be merciful and provide a lamb to be Isaac's substitute. God would provide so that his promises would not be violated. He would prove himself to be faithful. The Lord would not let Isaac, the child whom he had bound up all of his promises, die upon that mountain. And that's what the Lord does. Even as Abraham was preparing to strike the final blow, what does God do? He stays his hand, and he offers Abraham the ram to die in Isaac's place. This ram that is offered on Mount Moriah is a symbol of the greater lamb who is to come. This is Jesus. He's the lamb who atones for you. He is your substitute. As we think about that, and think about that, how that's reflected in the uh, worship of the Old Testament, blood and the shedding of lamb's blood was key to worship. The people of Israel were the people marked by lamb's blood. That's what the Passover was all about. We remember that, that the blood of the lamb marked their doorpost. And since they had the marking of the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the destroyer passed over their houses. There was also the Lamb of Atonement. This took place once a year in the temple. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would enter the holy place of the temple. He would go behind the veil. He would approach the Ark of the Covenant. As the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat of God, it was to be the throne of God. And under the throne of God, in the actual box of the Ark of the Covenant, there was to be the Ten Commandments, the Law of God. And so the priest would take the blood of the Lamb and he would sprinkle it over the Ark. And the sins against the law of God would be covered in blood. This was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The sins of the people of Israel were to be atoned for them in blood. You see, something had to die. Blood had to be spilt in order to deliver Israel from death and to offer them comfort for their sins. Now imagine for a minute, if Abraham had stopped short of the mountain... To consider what people would have thought of him if he went up to that mountain with his son Isaac. Imagine the sins that he would have been accused of. Imagine how God's name would have been blasphemed upon hearing what Abraham did in offering Isaac. Think about how people blaspheme the name of God today. As they, they call God unjust, they, they look at his judgments, they look at his wrath, they look at the condition of the world, and they say, I want nothing to do with this God, he's wicked. They read the scriptures, they disagree with parts of it, and they say, this God is bad. Most of the judgment, though, has to do with their own blindness. They deny that sin should be punished, at least their own sin. And those who put themselves in the seat of judgment before God also do so before God's Christians. As the devil and the world are quick to accuse the faithful to see whatever sticks, 
And sometimes there's a temptation to appease the world's wrath as the world will throw whatever insults or slanders they can at the Christians. They say, oh, you Christians, you're all sexist. You're all bigots. You're all fools. You believe in fairy tales and every other name under the sun. And the temptation is actually to care about what they have to say and try to make a case for ourselves so that we are vindicated in their sight. And so we'll seek to atone for the imagined sins that they conclude that we have committed against them by conceding their points and accepting their false ideas of righteousness. That's not the vindication we're praying for in Psalm 43. It's actually what drives us deeper into our sins because sometimes we fear the opinions and the judgments of men more than we rejoice in the judgment of God. We as the people of God have a greater atonement than this. That's what our lesson in Hebrews is all about. It says, When Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and all into all the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There's a greater vindication and atonement that has taken place. Most precious blood has been spilled. As we have a divine substitute who has taken our place upon the altar of God's judgment. And it's not a bull, it's not a goat, it's not a lamb, it's not a calf. There's nothing more precious than the blood that pours out to redeem us for our sins. This is as if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who sent the eternal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God, and he purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Consider that for a moment. We are purified in our consciences. Maybe we should think of our consciences more like a courtroom, where we have all the sin, all the accusations, all the, all the false information thrown at us in the world. We have, we have all the things that people accuse the church of being heaped up in our own hearts. We have our own failures and our sins set before our eyes. And yet our consciences stand purified. Every accusation made is atoned for. Because we're made holy through the mystery of the shedding of the blood. How on earth could anyone deny that their sins are forgiven when God has so dearly bought their atonement? We pray, vindicate me, O God. Judge me. Declare me to be righteous before the ungodly. Yet then, what do we do? We start making our case. We, 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 we surprise ourselves sometimes. I surprise myself. It's so surprising and sad that we often want to make our case for why we should be judged as good and righteous outside of that blood. There is no righteousness outside of the blood of Jesus. There is no goodness. There is no holiness. There is no goodness apart from the shedding of this blood. Yet, I don't always want this to be the case. When we make our case before the world, we like to argue, I've done nothing wrong. I'm good. I need to justify myself here because you're slandering me. As if their opinions matter, we can see the false premise. We beg them for mercy. No, that leads 
to disaster. There's only one opinion that counts. Their accusations are not the ones we should worry about. Their promises of comfort are meaningless. There's only one. There's only one comfort that matters in the end. There's only one vindication and judgment that really stands eternally, and that's the word of God. It's a lot like Job. Job was suffering. He, he lost everything. Uh, he, his health was failing him. All things were falling apart. He plops himself on an ash heap. He puts on his sackcloth, and he weeps. And his friends gather around him, and they, they sit for a while, let him, let him just be consoled by their presence. But then they say, you know, Job, you must have done something wrong here. Look at what happened to you. Your life is miserable. You must have done something to offend God. You must have some sort of secret sin that God is punishing for you. What is it? And Job responds first in a right way and then in a wrong way. He starts out by saying, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's great. Job's response is both right and wrong. Job says, I'm justified. I hope in my God. I have faith in the God who saves sinners, and my God is merciful to me. But then he's wrong as he pushes the argument a little too far. He says, yet I will argue my ways to my God's face. That will be my salvation, that the goodness shall come before him. Job wanted to argue his human righteousness. He said, I'll talk to God face to face. If only he were right here, I would tell him how unjust it is that I'm suffering like this. When his friends accuse him of sin, what does he do? He denies it. And he's about making a very elaborate and convincing case for himself. He wants to prove his own righteousness. And so, what does God do? He rebukes Job. First, he sends a man named Elihu. And he's, Elihu says this, he says, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like a wicked man, for he has rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. And then God speaks. He says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Who argues with God? Let him answer it. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here we have Job both being chastened and vindicated. Job wants to argue his case before his friends as they say, you must have done something to deserve all this sin, this suffering. Job says, no, I'm good. And if God were here, I'd tell him so. And God says, who are you to argue against me? God looks at Job's friends and says, how dare you accuse my holy one? Job is vindicated. Job is called to faith in the redemption that is in the blood of Jesus. And to that, Job clings. See, Job wanted to make a case for his righteousness apart from the atoning sacrifice. He hoped in God. He trusted in a Savior. But when he was suffering, when he was hard-pressed, when he was accused, 
He defaulted into making his case based on his own righteousness. I've done no wrong. I don't deserve this. I'm good. How often do we deserve that? How often do we do that? How often do we seek to make a case for ourselves? Uh, we want to be vindicated. We, we want our righteousness to be demonstrable before our accusers. We, we want our faith in God to be proven true and good. And when we're pressed, we fight to, I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. This couldn't be further from the truth, though. And though Job may have not overtly sinned against any one person, Job multiplied his sins by attempting to make the case for himself based on his own righteousness. We do that, too. Whenever we seek to satisfy or console our consciences, whenever we seek to quell the accusations of the world outside of us or the devil who tries to throw our sin at us by anything other than the blood of Jesus, we multiply our sin. There's only one answer to sin. There's only one removal for sin. There is only one freedom for sin. And it's for that sin to be forgiven. It's for the divine wrath reserved for sins of the world to be carried out on our substitute, Jesus. Do not think for a minute that God will vindicate you in any other way. He will not declare you to be righteous before the ungodly if you are resting in your own righteousness. The Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. It is faith in the blood that is shed for your forgiveness. As it says in Romans, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. No one can claim, I'm good, I'm righteous. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a mercy seat by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And so who is righteous? Who is worthy of vindication? Who does God say, you are good, you are holy, you are just to in the end? Well, it's Jesus. And who receives Jesus? Jesus, the righteous one. Jesus, the only one who's not consumed and bound by sin. He's the one who atones for He's the one who stands as the substitute. He's the one who bears the wrath that must happen to truly judge sin. That happens to Jesus. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Christ is crucified, he's forsaken by his Father. He's denied and treated with contempt by his God. He's cursed. He suffers the true hell that we deserve. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. And as he cries out, he stands as our perfect substitute. He is the unblemished lamb, blemished lamb who spills his blood upon the mercy seat. He's the one whose blood is sprinkled in order to cover every offense against the law of God. Once and for all, every sin is covered. And so we have no other hope. There is no vindication for mankind outside of that blood. There is no righteousness. There is no goodness. There's the only hope and righteousness that are found in Jesus. That's how God vindicates you. That is how God makes his case for you. This is how he distinguishes you from the ungodly. It's by covering you in the blood of Jesus. It's by atoning for your sins with the death of his son. And this should be the only case that we argue before the ungodly. 
When we are accused of sin, our answer can be, yeah, you're right, I'm a sinner. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, once upon a time, the devil said to me, Martin Luther, you are a great sinner and you will be damned. Stop it, I said. One thing at a time. I am a great sinner. You're right. It's true. Though you have no right to tell me it, I confess it. What next? Therefore, you will be damned? Okay. Well, that's not good reasoning. It's true, I'm a great sinner, but it's written, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, therefore I will be saved. Now go away. I cut the devil off with his own sword, and he went away mourning, because he could not cast me down by calling me a sinner. That's the vindication that we cling to. When we pray, vindicate me, O God, defend my just cause against an ungodly people, he does that in the blood of Christ. That's the only judgment that matters. We can spend all our time and all of our energy that we have in this life striving to make the case for ourselves before the devil and the world, but it would end up in nothing. And we'd still be left in our sins. And so be truthful. This church is a room full of sinners. I am a sinner, chief of foremost of all the sinners gathered here. And as we are gathered here as sinners, we are certain in one common confession. Jesus has died for me. I am sealed in the blood of Christ. I am redeemed. And this is the promise that Abraham clinged to as he climbed Mount Moriah with Isaac. It's the blood of Jesus. This is what Job was left with after he was rebuked by God in Elihu. It was the blood of Jesus. That's what you have today. It's the blood of Jesus. As we live each and every day of our lives in this world, we do not need to appease the masses. We do not need to argue our own case. We do not need to tell the world that, okay, yeah, we agree with you, just back off. No, we have the blood of Jesus. This promise will never put you to shame. The ungodly will never understand this sort of righteousness, but you know what? That doesn't matter. All that matters is that God understands your righteousness, and God vindicates your cause. God declares you to be righteous and holy in his sight. God has said that you are now called to take part in his Son. And it's the light of God to deliver you as his child. And so rejoice in knowing that God answers our cry and our call to vindicate us and to render us just. Let's pray. Father in heaven, allow us to find no other consolation for our sins other than the blood of Jesus. Cause us to cling to the atoning sacrifice of true faith. Allow this to be for us the only and final word that vindicates us and gives us true everlasting joy. Allow the blood of Christ to silence the world and the devil as we stand under your righteous judgment. And give us joy as we stand in your presence now and today, knowing that we do so with the righteousness that is received by faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of